As we come to God's word this morning, let's just bow our heads and pray. Father God, as we come to your word, we pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you will give us ears to listen and hearts that are willing to take on board and to obey. In the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, we're thinking about Abraham and Abraham being tested. We are rooted in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, and we're thinking about the huge, huge test of faith that Abraham had to face. So it'll be no surprise to you at all this morning that we've got to go digging deep into the Old Testament. But first, in 331 BC, Alexander the Great demonstrated his command over his troops to an enemy king. He commanded his troops to line up facing a cliff and then commanded the soldiers to start walking. Each did so obediently in respect for their leader and one by one they began marching to the edge of the cliff. The first soldier got to the edge of the cliff and he stepped off and fell to his death as did the second, the third, the fourth, all the way until the eleventh man, when Alexander suddenly shouted, Stop! And he looked back at the king, who was completely astonished by the obedience of the men and the utter respect they had for Alexander, their leader. That was a pretty outrageous command, to tell your soldiers to walk to their death at the edge of a cliff. But the command of God this morning is even more astonishing. See, Alexander the Great, he wasted the lives of his troops for no real purpose. Here in the account this morning, deep in Genesis, God is planning and preparing salvation history. And so the writer to the Hebrews takes us back to Genesis 22. And we're going to do some digging this morning. You'll remember, of course, that Abraham was called by God from Ur of the Chaldeans. And God's promise to Abraham was follow me, obey me, trust me, and I will make you to be a great nation. In fact, I will bless all peoples on earth through you. Abraham gets up and he goes to the land that God has promised him. And he waits in eager expectation for God's promise to be fulfilled. God's promise to bless the world through him and his offspring. But there's a problem. He hasn't got any offspring. The years are advancing. And as they go by, things become more and more impossible, humanly speaking. Now, let's just pick up the account in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now the writer in Genesis wants to make an emphasised point to us. In chapter 16, we read now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. Chapter 17 opens up when Abraham was 99 
years old. An emphasis how old he is. And then Genesis chapter 17, verse 15 to 19, we discover that Abraham falls on his face and laughs at the idea that he's going to have a child. After all, he's old, and if that's not a problem, his wife is well past childbearing age, and she's been barren the whole of her life. Chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, we read about the visitors and Sarah doesn't believe there's any chance of her having a baby. But you know, God always fulfills his promises. And in due course, the child of the promise comes. I want us to roll on a few years because now Isaac is a young lad and Abraham is taking great delight in him. He's the child of the promise. And then in Genesis chapter 22, like a bolt of lightning, we read this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I shall tell you. An astonishing command. You see, this is not what God does. And this is the child of the promise. Now, if you know your story in Genesis, you will realise that Abraham had another child, Ishmael, born through Hagar. But he was not the child of the promise. The child of the promise, as far as God is concerned, the child of the promise is Isaac, the child born to Abraham and Sarah. And this child, the child of the promise, awaited and longed for for so many years, born out of impossibility. The child who is going to be the one through whom all the world is going to be blessed. Through him all nations will be blessed. The Saviour Jesus Christ is going to come through him. And the command comes to Abraham from God. Take your son and go and sacrifice him on a mountain. Kill the promise, Abraham. Kill the covenant, Abraham. And this is not what God does. Abraham knows that God is just and righteous and fair. And, and, and killing children as a child sacrifice is something that God hates. It is an abomination to him. It just makes no sense. And yet, what do we read? I find this astonishing in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. There's no procrastination. It seems as if God didn't tell him when to go. It was a command. And being a command, Abraham got up and obeyed God. You know, I'd have come up with 101 excuses. Um, I need to get ready. I need to sort my hair out. I need to get packed. But no, Abraham gets up early. 
I guess he probably didn't sleep anyhow, but he gets up early. He doesn't debate or argue with God. He doesn't question God. He doesn't say, why God? He gets up and goes. And then think about the journey. It's three days journey to Mount Moriah. Three days for Abraham to change his mind and turn round. You can imagine as he's walking along the road or riding, I don't know what he did. But the thought process, I don't have to go through this. I can turn round. You can almost feel the temptation. It's tangible. And yet he travels on in obedience to God, to the place in the distance. And we get a glimpse of the conversation. I mean, Isaac asks the obvious question. You know, Dad, we've got, we've got wood, we've got fire. But we've not got anything to sacrifice. What's going on here? And in this section, we're let in on loads of key facts, key phrases. And the first one comes in verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and listen and come again to you. I'll come again to you. So is Abraham planning to back out at the last moment? Is he just going through the motions? When it comes to raising the knife, is he going to change his mind? Is he expecting a reprieve? Don't forget, we know the end of the story. He doesn't. We discover nothing of the sort. Abraham expects to kill his son. So how can he say to the servants, we will come back to you? Hold on to that thought for a moment. So Abram takes his son, ties him down on the altar. I always wonder whether Isaac was traumatised by this. There's no resistance from Isaac towards his old man, dad. And Abraham raises the knife with every intention of plunging it into his son. And at the very last moment, in verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, what is all this about? Well, we know it was a test of Abraham's faith and trust in God. But there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye at first glance. And this is where it gets particularly fascinating. Now, this morning, I don't know whether you're holding a cup of coffee as you're watching or you're eating your cereal, but you need to concentrate, OK? And um, to concentrate and bear with me, because there are loads of different pieces here I want you to hang on to before we wrap them all up together. And here's the first thing. We read in this account, your son, your only son. Isaac was the only son of the promise. But three times we read, your son, your only son. We read that in verse 2, in verse 12. And verse 16. Notice how many times the word and the phrase appears. 
He's not called Isaac. He's not called your son. He's called your son, your only son. Listen to that verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 again. He who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. That just emphasises here that the choice of words, the phrase is deliberate, it's purposeful and there are things that we need to understand by it. So, OK, park that in your mind for now and let's move on. Because secondly, I want you to think about the lamb. So look in verse 8, we're in Genesis 22 still. And in verse 8, we read this. Abraham said to Isaac when he was questioned about where's the animal, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So God is going to provide the lamb for the burnt offering. That's what Abraham says to Isaac, even though Abraham knows he's going to sacrifice Isaac. And then see what happens, because in verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes. This is after Isaac has been spared and looked and behold, behind him was a ram, not a lamb. A ram is a much older sheep. A lamb is just a young sheep. Park that thought in your mind too. Here's the next one you need to park in your mind too. The Lord will provide. Look in verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Now, if this is all about the ram that is being provided, then the tense is all wrong. It would be the Lord has provided. But at the end of verse 14, we read, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So there is an emphasis here that something is going to happen in the future. The Lord will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. So it's not the ram. And then the fourth thing here, and I'm working really hard this morning and it's a Sunday morning. But just bear with me, because this is amazing as we kind of put it together in a moment. We read then about the mountain of the Lord in verse 14, specifically. On the mount of the Lord, it will be or it shall be provided. So just to add to the mix, why Mount Moriah? God could have chosen any mountain. Why did he tell Abraham to go to a mountain three days away? Well, yeah, that was an extra test of his faith because he had three days to change his mind. But this is specific. Why not keep on calling it Mount Moriah? Instead, it is deliberately referred to as the Mount, the Mountain of the Lord. So, if you've managed to stay with me this morning, we've got four issues floating around. First of all, we've got your son, your only son. Then we've got a promised lamb that didn't arrive. It was a ram instead. Then we've got a future promise that the Lord will provide. And then fourthly, we've got reference to the mountain of the Lord. Well, let's start to unpick it and put it back together.
Mount Moriah is only mentioned twice in the Bible. The second time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 3 verse 1. Listen. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Do you get it? Jerusalem was built on Mount Moriah. The temple and the temple courts were on Mount Moriah. Golgotha was on the edge of Mount Moriah. This Mount Moriah is the place where the mock trial of the Lamb of God happened. This is the city that saw the crucifixion of God's one and only Son. The promise way back in Genesis 22 that God will provide on this mountain. The promise is a lamb, not a ram. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you get it? See, Genesis 22 is just so full of deep meaning. This is ultimately pointing to promise fulfilment through Abraham and his obedience, his tested faith. God's son, his one and only son, the Lamb of God, slain for us on Mount Moriah. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why did Abraham go to Mount Moriah? Because Mount Moriah would be the place where the Lamb of God would be sacrificed for us. God's one and only Son. And God didn't spare his own Son. He allowed him to die. A cursed death on a cruel Roman cross. But he came back to life again and rose from the dead. Having set the scene and worked our way through Genesis chapter 22... I want you now to come back to our text passage in Hebrews chapter 11. And there are one or two things I want us to note from, these, um, from this short passage. First of all, the section here about Abraham is by faith Abraham. You see, all of Abraham's actions were underpinned completely by faith and trust in God and in God alone. What is faith? Being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Second thing I want you to understand, Isaac was offered in verse 17. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his own son. For Abraham, this was an incredible step. His son encompassed within him all of God's promises. And in effect, God is saying to Abraham, Abraham, kill the promise. Humanly speaking, this was the end of the promise that had come to Abraham. And when Abraham raised the knife, in his mind, the deed was done. There was no turning back and please just put yourself in his position because he doesn't know the end of the story 
He didn't know that God was going to tell him to stop. In fact, quite the opposite. He expected to lose his son. Thirdly, then, the logic. Abraham calmly and rationally, over three days travelling, came to a conclusion. He deduced, and Hebrews tells us this, he deduced that when he sacrificed Isaac, God would bring him back from death. Now, as far as I know, Abraham didn't have a lot of experience of human beings coming back from death. But God had made it so clear to Abraham that his promise was reliable, his covenant was sure, he would deliver that Abraham reasoned logically because God had to keep his promise that he would bring Isaac back. Wow, that's some faith and some trust. The child who meant everything to him, absolutely everything, he was willing to sacrifice because he reasoned that God's promises cannot fail and he would have to bring him back. <clears throat> There's something lovely to take away from that this morning. God's promises to us never fail. Isn't that lovely? He always has the power to deliver. He never disappoints. He never runs out on us. And we can trust in him completely. And then the fourth thing I want us to see here is the ultimate promise. God blessed to promised to bless all nations on earth through Abraham. Isaac was the, uh, the promise of salvation to us in our New Testament age. And this event is highly significant because it's part of that initial plan to get salvation history underway. But encapsulated within it is the promise of Mount Moriah. The promise of the Messiah, God's one and only son, the son whom he did not spare the son who died on Mount Moriah as the promised lamb and was raised by God to life again. So why does the writer to the Hebrews include this account amongst many others? Well ultimately the answer is to be found in Hebrews chapter 12 1 to 3 which is almost like the summary of these um, great heroes of faith. Therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the witnesses are the men and women of faith who've proved God true in the previous chapter. Let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Abraham, along with all these men and women of faith who have proved God trustworthy through the testing of their faith, are witnesses to God's faithfulness. Abraham knew that God was 100% dependable. And the writer wants us to trust God in the same way. But here in the New Testament age, we look back to those men and women as witnesses for inspiration to learn the lessons, to see how people have proved God's faithfulness. 
But ultimately, we look to Jesus, the one who died on Mount Moriah. And we are to put our faith and trust in him. We can trust in his promises completely. We're called to fix our eyes upon him, to focus our eyes upon him. We're called to live a life of obedience, trusting him moment by moment. And if I'm honest in my life, sometimes a little bit, I'm a little bit like the man Jesus had a conversation with. And Jesus said to the man, don't you believe? And the man said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's me. So often I end up praying that. And my prayer this morning is that all of us would learn to trust God more, to trust in his promises. This is about fixing our eyes upon Jesus. And as I wrap up this morning, let me tell you a story. A number of years ago, I had a friend who decided he would teach me to water ski. Never done it before. So I got my water skis on, a lake in Shropshire. I sat back armchair position in the water, skis up, ready to go, and then shouted, hit it, which is what you're supposed to shout apparently when you want the boat to take off pretty fast. Well, the boat did take off fast and I let go. Um, I had another couple of failed attempts and then eventually I got up. It was brilliant. We were hurtling down the lake at a vast speed. I think it was about 12 miles an hour. And a sense of elation. And as we got towards the end of the lake, I suddenly realised that we, we had to go round the end of the lake and come back again. And if you can work it out logically, you have to cross the bow way from the boat as you turn the corner. Except I didn't cross it. I just went into it. I tried again. I got out the water, tried again. Same thing happened at the other end. And then my friend Dan said, before he pulled me out for the third time, to have another go. He said, Al, he said, I want you to do something different this time. He said, can you see that pole that the rope is attached to? He said, when you get to the end of the lake this time, I want you to fix your eyes on that pole. I want you to focus your eyes there. I don't want you to look at anything else, the bow wave, what's going on on the shore, me, the boat. Don't look down at your skis. Fix your eyes on that pole. You can guess what happened, can't you? I never had a problem going round a corner again. And if I did, I always knew what I had to do to put it right. That's how we are supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus. In this world, lots of things, lots of people would want us to take our eyes off Jesus. Abraham had his eyes focused on God and his promises. And today we too need to fix our eyes on Jesus. So go and do that this week. Fix your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him. And follow him closely. And don't fall into the water like I did. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the account of Abraham. Lord, thank you for tested faith that proved your promises always hold good. Help us, we pray, to trust in you in everything in our lives. Help us to have a faith that grows, a trust in you that develops, that we might walk more closely with you. And even this week, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
and to keep our eyes on him. We pray this in his name. Amen.